To our dear Wellness Couch listeners, we are sending you all our love during these unprecedented times. Now is the time to appreciate what community really is all about. And on the back of our wellness base camps in Geelong and Camden being postponed, we've decided to run a virtual experience that anyone can attend. It's called Crisis to Confidence. Right now, the world faces five major challenges. The first one, fear and anxiety. So Kim Morrison will present Uncertainty and Love. The second one is social isolation. So Marcus Pierce is going to talk about how to build community during these difficult times. The third is mental and emotional despair. So Brett Hill will talk about how to develop resilience. The fourth is financial uncertainty. So Jason Witten will talk about creating financial security. And the fifth is a challenged immunity. So Cindy O'Meara will share how to boost our immunity during these times. Crisis to Confidence will be broadcast live on Saturday, April 4. And if you can't make it, you'll receive lifetime access. To register and for all the details, go to thewellnessbasecamp.com. That's thewellnessbasecamp.com. Thank you, Wellness Cow Tribe. We love you and send our virtual hugs and kisses. Are you passionate about health and nutrition? Then check out the Nutrition Academy. They offer the most comprehensive, innovative, and transparent health and nutrition educational resource on the planet. They strive to separate health misinformation from reality. They give their students the resources and skill sets to think critically about what they read and learn. So you can use the power of research to make better decisions for yourself, your family, and the people you serve. The Nutrition Academy have kindly offered all listeners a discount for this course, so you are able to try it out for yourself with a saving of $50. Just use the code TNN50 at thenutrition.academy or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast, and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning in to today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 267 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Kirsty Worth from Cultured Wellness for part two of Setting Up Your Gut Microbiome for Pregnancy and Beyond. We discussed the forgotten nutrient choline, the key foods you need to be eating during pregnancy, and what considerations need to be made for vegetarian and vegan mothers-to-be. We then explore translocation and the role of breast milk in establishing a baby's microbiome, infant formulas, and so much more. Hi, Kirsty, and welcome back to the show. Hey, Steph. Thanks for having me back. I know, part two today. So we had obviously um, a really great response to our last episode. And obviously the focus last time, we really dived into, you know, preconception and pregnancy, nutrition, and of course, gut health. Um, And there was a a sort of a leftover topic that I really wanted to um, discuss with you just to kind of finalize the pregnancy part of our discussion before we move on. So one of the nutrients that I think is really important in pregnancy and certainly beyond, but um, that's often forgotten about is choline. You know, we hear so much about 
folate and everyone knows the you know the importance of folate for preventing you know neural tube defects spina bifida um but there's that huge complication with um mthfr defects and what your prenatal contains and that topic we've discussed extensively before but choline is so important for reasons similar to folate in that it's really important in those early stages and yeah i just wanted to get your thoughts on on choline and um and, and mothers and what we could be doing to really boost that in pregnancy. Yeah, I mean, it, it, choline is, I, I totally agree with you, Steph. I think it's uh, under-discussed and it certainly should be out there as one of the key, key nutrients. And when you look at what choline does for us, it is so important in pregnancy, for example, supports brain function, nervous system, memory, our mood, just those things alone just for a mum during pregnancy is so key to be able to support us. And as we know, if our nervous system is really well supported, our body is in that nice, calm state that allows you know us to be able to go through our pregnancy and not in that fight or flight mode, which of course then our baby really gets in and set into that fight or flight mode. So even just calming that nervous system. But we know that choline supports liver function. It supports brain health. It actually helps with gene expression, with that cell membrane signaling. And for infants and for, you know, when we're moving through pregnancy, spinal cord formation is a key, key thing that um, definitely needs a lot of support from that choline nutrient. So it's um, one of those things that I suppose it's not the rock star. I mean, when we look at folate, for example, it is a bit of a rock star in that whole pregnancy area. But like you said, this um, the choline needs to have um, pride of place because of so many functions in the body that it supports. Definitely. And quite early stage as well with what you said around um, the spinal cord. It's beneficial for fetal brain development, but also placental function, right? So these are things that are forming quite early in pregnancy and not dissimilar with um, prenatals, like for people who, um, you know, aren't sort of doing a three-month preconception plan, um, they often don't get these nutrients in early enough, which is why I think it's really important to have those three months at least, like we discussed last time, to make sure you're really starting with a really well-nourished body and also, again, habits like we spoke about last time because we need these nutrients you know, very early in trimester one. Yeah, absolutely. It was interesting. I came across choline as a really important factor um, when I was doing a lot of reading around sort of GAPS work, Dr. Natasha McBride's work. And one of the key things that she adds in so early on in supporting the body and of course the brain and liver function and brain development was egg yolks. And I was just fascinated by this stuff. I was like, why would we, would someone and obviously Dr. Natasha McBride being such an incredible resource and an amazing practitioner, why would she be suggesting egg yolks? And, of course, that is one of the key, key, um, you know, foods where we can get an abundant supply of that choline. And so that was sort of my first encounter because as we discussed in um, part one of, you know, this topic that we're talking about, I came to the scene <laughs> post-birth for my kids. And, um, yeah, it was really interesting that whole, um, you know, just adding in when you're doing that preconception and during, um, you know, pregnancy, just adding in those egg yolks. So simple, yeah, it can make such a huge difference to not only yourself but also your bum. Absolutely. And egg yolks, of course, and um, organ meats, which mm. we spoke about last time and certainly I've been talking a lot about on Instagram lately. Um, <laughs> so then we always, for me, I'm circling back to, all right, these are beautiful foods and what do our vegetarians and vegans do? You know, of course, vegetarians are eating eggs, so that's a little bit different, but plants are pretty low in choline. So I honestly think that it's not a common supplement, but it, it is in some prenatals, depending on what mm -hmm. you're taking. 
But again, if especially if you're a vegan, like really understanding what you're lacking early and looking for support. And it most likely is going to be in supplemental form, just like our mm. DKJs. Yeah. And being a fat soluble nutrient, uh, when you're looking at the form that you want to get, really make sure that it is, um, you, you know, it's obviously a pure product that it is supported in that fat soluble nutrient and the way that it's delivered in a supplement form mm. and getting a, a really good quality one because uh, unfortunately the way that it's produced, it, it you can not get the best out of your supplement. So um, that's a really important piece of that puzzle if you're not getting it from your, you know, just from your food as medicine, which is obviously the best possible outcome. Now, I know that some people, eggs, egg yolks, egg whites aren't suitable for them. Mm. And so once again, it is just, okay, this is something that's really key to that optimum nutrition that I'm creating and that I'm, you know, padding out for myself. And so let, let's just look in to make sure that we've got the best possible supplements there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then the right dietary fats, like it's a bit of a segue, but lately I'm seeing like the plant-based movement also become quite low fat, which is just freaking me out because not oh, only, unless you're oh, doing really well. I mean, this is probably another podcast for itself. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah the, my concern for, you know, everything, hormones, brain health. I mean, it's completely um, almost dangerous for any kind of preconception or pregnancy um, and beyond. And I wish, like, I wish there was sort of more information about how to do plant-based properly, which is why it's a topic I talk about, even though I'm not a vegan and I, I don't sort of encourage that. If someone wants to be a vegan, they need to do it properly. And it's about the awareness of the right volume of healthy fats, you know, not to mention mm. micronutrients and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, it's probably important to take pause here and think mm. about how often we feel like we're invincible and that these, you know, oh, that won't happen to me or I'm pretty good, everything's fine. Um, and, you know, I think it is important that we acknowledge how, <laughs> how many nutrients that, you know, when you're creating a new incredible human life, how much you need. It, it's quite overwhelming and quite shocking. And if we don't really sit with it and really understand it and it's not passed down, as we've talked about before, through generations of story and language and understanding, we can get into this false uh, sense of rush and urgency that I'll be fine, I've got to fall pregnant, I've got to do it in between this window of travelling overseas and then getting my job promotion and mm -hmm. all those kinds of things. And um, and we do in this day and age, because we have so much access to everything, we do feel invincible. And when it comes to creating human life, we're not invincible. And it, it, and it will, it, you know, things will unfold. So... Uh, it, it's really important to take stock and then speak to a practitioner that, and you can just bounce ideas off about, okay, so like you were saying about the plant base, just if that's your philosophy, speak to someone to make sure that the philosophy matches the nutrients that's needed to build a robust and gorgeous, healthy little infant. Mm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So let's switch gears just a little bit and start to move to um, post-pregnancy, really. So, um, yeah, let's let's go there around sort of gut health and nutrients and I'll, I'll let you start. <laughs> Where do I start? No. Well, <laughs> I think, um, I, I, look, I think the first thing to start with here is literally during birth and I can understand and it is many situations that we have um, emergency cesareans. We have situations where, thank goodness, we are in, you know, at modern times where mother and baby can live where in, you know, 200 years ago, a lot of, lots of cases that wasn't going to happen. So there are times where cesarean is needed. And I think it's worth pointing out at this time that um, the concept of seeding. Now, this has been well, kind of well known. It's been out in, you know, in sort of the common space for probably five years now. But what seeding is, and there are now 
uh, hospitals and birth clinics and it is available now and it's not, you, you know, you go in somewhere and someone looks at you, it's like, what, we're going to plant a garden in the hospital? So it's more well-known. And seeding is the fact that, you know, babies are bathed in their mother's um, bacteria. They're bathed in when they come out, the bacteria that they're exposed to. So even when they're placed on the beautiful little weighing table to weigh them and to see how they're going and to be assessed, there's bacteria on there in the hospital and they get it on their skin and when they hug mum, they get that on their skin too. And also when they're squeezed out through the birth canal, we know that the birth canal is not sterile and, you know, baby will get that up the nose, through the mouth, everywhere. And so if we have a situation where there is a cesarean for whatever reason that that is, seeding is a wonderful way to kickstart that translocation of bacteria from mum to bub to set that scene because that bacteria that transfers and that, you know, beds down really plays out quite a significant part of breastfeeding, settling, um, nervous system response. It, you know, it paves the way for how bub enters the world. So seeding literally is where you get uh, some gauze and the mother uses that gauze in the hospital setting to be able to swipe bacteria from mum and normally it's from the vaginal fluid and then up the baby's nose and mouth and all over the baby's skin. And there's been some incredible longitude studies on this practice. So longitude studies are generally about seven years. That's the minimum. And then they often go up to longer than that. And looking at babies that have been seeded after a cesarean and the balance and diversity of their gut microbiome from the age of seven. And it's incredible when you look at that comparison from a child that's been seeded versus a child that had a cesarean without the opportunity to be seeded. The diversity is different in their gut microbiome. Often there's uh, immune system issues and, there's, for example, things like asthma or allergies, and there is quite a stark difference. So I think we can even start there, Steph, and say there's wonderful knowledge out there and a wonderful opportunity to still, you know, translocate and still move that bacteria from mum to bub, even in situations where it's not the, you know, that sort of typical birth situation, which is just so exciting to know that because, um, you know, I, I know that cesareans are necessary when, you know, and thank goodness for that. So that's the first thing that I wanted to talk about. And then moving on from that, um, milk, obviously the, you know, breast milk, if that is the path that you choose and you are breastfeeding, it is one of the best ways for bacteria to migrate through those mammary glands. So literally from mum's gut microbiome, they come through the intramammary pathway, they go through those mammary glands and when you breastfeed, they translocate into bub's gut and not only into bub's gut but into bub's mouth. You know, obviously, you know, um, most of us, well, some of us who are fed have had, you know, milk shooting everywhere and it carries on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, you know, the, often it's like literally on baby's skin, it's everywhere, it's on your skin. And that is one of the most powerful, beautiful ways to colonize the GI tract and colonize Bub's gut. Because in that breast milk, there's oleosaccharide sugars, there's these beautiful sugars that enable our um, the breast milk to be digested because the breast milk's got a lot of sugar in it. And so we need that bacteria, or the baby needs that bacteria in its gut to be able to digest those sugars. And so if that bacteria is not in the baby's gut because of situations, for example, C-section without seeding or mum hasn't had a great balance of microbes in her gut, then what happens is it's like a vacant ecosystem. So you can imagine just sort of like a desolate ecosystem and that milk comes into that gut, the baby's gut, and the, the function's not there. There's no ability to be able to digest that milk 
and utilize it for beautiful nutrients that it has and utilize it for extrapolating energy and settling that nervous system and doing all those incredible things that breast milk does. What ends up happening without that bacteria there to be able to digest it is a lot of pain, a lot of undigested milk, a lot of wind, a lot of diarrhea. And then bubs isn't feeling well fed. They're low on nutrients and then they're fussy. They're unsettled. They can't sleep. And that's when we see this sort of colic diagnosis and when we see a lot of that um, diagnosis that really we should be looking at function. So what's going on with the gut? What's going on with the breastfeeding? How's, how's mum's health going? How's, you know, is her milk nice and robust? Is she having lots of beautiful fats to make that breast milk? And, and what's going on? So it, um, we really need to pay attention and understand that whole concept of what's happening in mum literally comes through that breast milk and into bubs. And even though you've given birth to this beautiful child, you're still very much joined together and working as a team so your you know baby's nutrients microbes ability to be able to absorb and to remain settled is 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 happening and if that's not happening and we're seeing things like mastitis for example then we need to start investigating the gut microbiome and bacteria as opposed to sleep clinics and gripe waters and, um, you know, low sec and all of the other stuff that we start to see when children have, um, you know, this, oh, they're just colicky, just pop the, prop the, the bed up or the cot up and they'll be fine. Yeah, it's really interesting because unfortunately I think the standard of care is what was established before we really understood the microbiome like we do today. So unfortunately we are seeing babies being prescribed low-sec, which is essentially for reflux for those that aren't familiar with that brand, um, without, yeah, without exploring what's going on at that root cause level. So, you know, what is happening in mum's gut that's coming through or not coming through the breast milk? Like that is a really huge missing piece from that early stage intervention. Unfortunately, we're still going towards pharmaceutical intervention or even those low allergenic formulas like the baby's allergic to mum's milk when I actually don't think that's often the case, in rare cases, but without addressing that microbiome level, I just think we're missing so much opportunity to improve a situation and keep mum feeding, keep mum breastfeeding for six months or longer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I suppose we'll dive into this in a minute, but there, there was, you know, you talked about that formula there. And, you know, Elicare, for example, one or most of them, actually, I don't even need to single out specific formulas. The, the first ingredient is fructose corn syrup. Yeah. So fructose corn syrup does not feed beneficial bacteria. So once again, we've got to go back and almost close your eyes and, and look at that ecosystem that we're developing. We have this incredible opportunity. We are so blessed that when we give birth to a child, we can nourish and nurture this ecosystem that is what is the basis of their brain function, their, you know, their core function, their muscle development. You know, it's just everything. And what we feed those microbes that produce those metabolites that help us to develop who we are, when we feed them what they need, we just thrive and flourish. But if we're feeding them fructose corn syrup, that just feeds pathogenic microbes. It is, it's sugar. Mm. And it's not the appropriate sugar. So as I talked about before, oleosaccharide sugar is in our breast milk and that is just the best sugar to be able to feed a building and, you know, a, a microbiome that is beginning to flourish. Now, fructose corn syrup it has a wonderful <laughs> ability to feed clostridium and to feed, um, of course, any form of parasites. And unfortunately, we can see parasites in very, very, very young children. 
and we start to see a change in that gut microbiome. It changes the pH of our digestive system and it, it really does support the growth of, you know, even when we look at mastitis, for example, with things like, you know, staph infections and yeast infections, those sorts of things, they're all driven by um, sugars. Mm-hmm. And if we're using formulas, which I did for, for my Maya until I understood and did some more reading, if we're feeding formulas that are um, not only man-made chemicals that are made in a lab so it's not food as medicine from nature but and also if we're feeding with syrups and sugars the balance is going to go right out and so we've really got to understand that delicate 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 microbiome that once it's set you know once it's developed once we've moved forward and got those first foods in that are also going to feed those beautiful beneficial microbes, then we're off and racing. But at that really important time um, during that early development, we, we can't be putting things like fructose corn syrup into, our, into the microbiome of our children. Yeah, look, it's such a sensitive topic. Like I um, shared my breastfeeding journey on Instagram and I'm really conscious when I talk about it as I know you are too, Kirsty, because um, everyone's got their own feeding journey and this conversation might bring up some stuff <laughs> some <laughs> or, you know, some, some mum guilt or whatever it might be. So like, I really do want to respect everyone's individual journey. Where I think we're really trying to change things is at that practitioner level or at the 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 GP level, whoever it is that mother goes to see first for help needs to have an awareness of the gut microbiome because mastitis is unfortunately going to nearly always be, you know, a prescription of antibiotics, which further interrupts the mum's gut, which further interrupts that translocation through the breast milk. And we're just going around and around in circles. And you know, having a newborn by itself is the hardest thing we could almost ever do. Yet not to mention having the feeding, the infections, the antibiotics, the reflux, the not sleeping. Like I can't even imagine what that must be like. Like my heart breaks that we're seeing so many mums go through this when firstly a lot of it could have been avoided if mum's gut was addressed preconception. And then secondly, we, you know, we're using the information that we've got around the gut microbiome to support mum's breastfeeding journey instead of just telling mum that baby is allergic to her milk and giving a prescription for, like you said, Elecare, one of those um, high, you know, um, high allergy formulas. Mm, yeah. And ab- absolutely, Steph. And, you know, if, if there are mums out there listening to this that are in the same situation as me, that were literally told this is the formula that is going to make your child sleep. And what else are you going to do? Of course you're going to do that. Your child hasn't slept for a week. You haven't slept for a week and you've got a toddler, you know, as well. And you know no better. So it's not, um, you know, we don't want mums feeling guilt about this. We need to call for more action in being able to support mums with the appropriate information that is up to date and that is supportive of all of the beautiful functions. So, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. We, um, we need to be able to make sure that the information's out there but not, not make mums feel, um, you know, like, yeah, like remorseful or uh, I've ruined my child's life and all of those sorts of things because you don't. If you get the appropriate care and there are so many incredible practitioners now that can give you that appropriate care, you can really make the best incredible changes to your child's gut microbiome to ensure that we can reseed and we can create this new robust, incredible microbiome using food as medicine and fermented foods. And, um, you know, it's exciting now with the amount of knowledge and with the amount of care that's out there. So, um, yeah, like if, if you have been down that road of formula, um, I would see it as this wonderful opportunity that, thank goodness, 
I now have access to this because now I can just go out and, and get this um, information and get it sorted. So Such a beautiful um, way yeah. to reframe things. Yeah, because for a lot of mums who um, are past that journey, they obviously can't change the past. No. <laughs> Hopefully if they're going to have another child, they might look at doing things differently and, you know, changing the preconception and so on. Um, but formulas are tricky. Like I remember when I was pregnant, um, I think that might've been the first time I started really looking at formulas and recipes and just starting to like really look at, all right, what, what would I do if I can't breastfeed for whatever reason? Mm. So, you know, I've had, um, a very, um, I don't like to word, use the word lucky, but you know, I've been able to, um, breastfeed grace without a hiccup we're almost at 12 months so i'm going to have a little bit of a celebration when she turns one because i feel like that's quite an achievement i didn't think i was going to make it um, story, actually, you so made sure. 12 12 months with your iron intact oh <laughs> i've just kept it together but yeah. the reality is unfortunately in australia we just don't have a good quality formula option like i hate mm. to break it to you know, our listeners, but there isn't a product that doesn't have something like a synthetic ingredient. If it's not, uh, like you said, the fructose, unfortunately, we're still seeing canola oil in even the quote unquote healthy products that most people are aware of, like the Bellamy's or the whole or Holly, I don't know how you pronounce that word actually, yeah. formula. There's mm. the canola oil stool. And I just don't think that's okay. We need to mm. see formulas updated again, now that we've got the knowledge that we've got on the use of vegetable oils. And I would love to see a beautiful whole food formula available for those mums that do need it. You know, I've seen um, brands trying to get products on the market, but have a huge issue, like a huge number of hiccups and issues along the way that they're just not released yet. So unfortunately, there's not an incredible option. There's only you know, there's only something that's just okay that we then need to really pair with great nutrition supplements if we're getting that personalised advice, uh, advice mm. rather. And then, of course, yeah, reseeding the gut if we haven't been able to breastfeed or if our journey has been cut short. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, like you said, just ensuring that, um, you know, your health is robust with those good quality fats and everything that you need. So there's, you know, if, if you have a situation where it's part breastfeeding and part formula, then, yeah, that beautiful nutrients is going in and you're mindful of the gut. And, and that's wonderful, absolutely wonderful. But it, it, is, it is really hard. I'm a bit out of touch with what formulas are around at the moment. So um, that's interesting to hear. We haven't progressed too far. No, we haven't. <laughs> I can't, I feel I can't say this because I haven't actually had to do it. But I hand on heart was ready to make my own. Like I had my ingredients ready to go. I've created a recipe and I was close yeah. to, to doing that thinking, all right, like I need to get my head around getting in the kitchen and how I'm going to make enough and is it possible and all those sorts of variables. Um, yeah. And I didn't have to do that, but I have helped um, other mums do that. And certainly in the first six months, it's very different because they're almost always solely relying on um, milk yeah. or formula and then after six months it's a different picture because you start to sort of balance out what foods they can get yeah but yeah it's just unfortunately the reality so I feel like don't shoot the messenger because I'm just presenting the facts on yeah. what these quote-unquote healthy formulas still contain yeah. as their ingredients synthetic folic acid things I just don't love um, but again if we keep you know if we keep asking for more asking for better someone's got to come to the party surely I mean I'm not about to start a formula company <laughs> <laughs> no but I think I think also it's you know I uh, like a personal story so when um you know my breastfeeding with Maya did really come into the fore and we you know I fed her for two years and thank goodness um because it was really such an important part of her development but I noticed that whenever I tried to go back to play netball and I've always played a very high level of netball, whenever I'd try and go back, as um, I would just completely run out of milk. Mm. And so I had to just make that decision. Like I either 
go back to netball and I can't breastfeed and, or, um, you know, I give up my netball. And so looking back on that now, like I was low fat, like you would not believe back mm. then. So looking back on that now, I could have had my cake and eaten it too, so to speak, in the fact that if I understood nutrients and if I understood how to make the most beautiful, nutrient-dense breast milk, I could have gone back to playing netball. But the story behind that, the reason why I'm telling that story is that I, most mothers, most mothers want to have that breastfeeding experience. Mm. And mm. most mothers, <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever the time is, like it might only be six weeks, right? But whatever that time is, most mothers want to set up that um, foundation. Now, we need to understand that to make breast milk, we need to be well rested and we can't have too much on our plate, which is exactly what we try and do <laughs> as mothers of this sort of, um, you know, environment. And so I think often we call on um, formula to be able to keep up with everything that we want to be doing. And this is absolutely Kim Morrison's space in self-care. So, I, um, you know, it's not my area. But I, 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 we need to sort of say that sometimes just taking a step back and resting and asking for help, having that extra sleep, you know, asking someone, can you please just make me a, a, a big lot of broth and a beautiful slow cook tonight, um, you know, that can make or break the difference between your uh, quality of your milk and moving forward in your breastfeeding journey. Um, and, and we really need to talk about that more, that the expectations on mums are so huge that it can interrupt your expectations of feeding or it can not support your feeding. And so, I, I you know, for all the mums out there, we just need more support and more care, but we also need to put up our hand and go, you know what? I'm going to go to bed tonight. I'm going to have a big long sleep as opposed to, um, you know, going out to that dinner that's expected of me or, or, or that kind of thing. And I, I've, I, we need to support young mums more in that situation. Yeah, it's, it's taught me boundaries like no other thing because there's only so much you can do when you can't pour from an empty cup. So as a mother, yeah. like I'm a little bit different. I guess I've had kids a little bit later in life, but um, some mothers are not good at putting themselves first and unfortunately they're the ones that end up depleted and you just can't be your best. And right. certainly in those early days when your baby is 100% reliant on you, yeah, I agree with you, asking for help. But um, for, for me personally, like what I really want to do differently is really celebrate that fourth trimester. So like I went back to work when Grace was eight weeks. I'll never do that again, hand on heart. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. like just silly things that I look back and think, oh, God, what a, like, you know, what a martyr kind of thing. Um, but we're now really understanding, yes, the significance of the fourth, if not the fifth trimester and avoiding postnatal depletion by looking after ourselves, setting boundaries, putting less on our plate, but really nourishing ourselves with whole foods and, you know, not worrying about getting back to our post-birth weight or any of that bullshit that we see on, you know, in, in some spaces anyway. Not so much. Yeah. Nowadays, but it's still something that goes on. Yeah, yeah. And and we want, like, if we want to breastfeed, we need that extra, you know, support, extra it's weight in our body. That's, protein. that's why we put it on. <laughs> it's to be able to create, um, you know, beautiful nutrients for our babies. So... Yeah, it's, it, it is really hard, really, really hard because you do, especially with your first child, think, oh, I can jump back out in there and I can manage breastfeeding and going back to work and I can manage just what I was doing before. I'll just have this baby and it will be fine. And um, it's very hard to, to see that sometimes that's not the case unless you've lived it, like you said, like you won't do that again. No. So, yeah, it's hard. And I'm then we find out my house for three months. And people can come to me, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> One of my bestest, dearest, closest friends, her third child, she did. Now, is it called the Red Month? Oh, Steph, I've forgotten. Oh, what it's it different actually... in every culture. Like if you read um, the Postnatal Depletion Guide, I'll look up the author. His, his name has escaped me now. But the first chapter is this incredible synopsis of um, 
what a lot of cultures do, whether it is um, the month or some much, much longer, six weeks, yeah. have so much yeah. support. Um, the postnatal depletion cure, which is by um, Dr. Oscar oh, Serilac. And, um, mm. yeah, I just think it's incredible. Go on, your friend or your client, you're saying? Oh, yeah, no, my dear, dear friend. And mm. so she had postnatal depression with baby one, baby two. And baby three, she um, put in place all of those principles for, um, she called it the red month, um, which is from, you know, traditional sort of culture times. Mm -hmm. So she literally did not leave the house for a month. And she called on friends and family and she just stayed home and nurtured herself and nurtured her baby and everyone around her supported that. And she didn't experience any postnatal depression. And she wow. was able to have a really successful breastfeeding journey and popped up, you know, after that time, like, I am ready for the world. Like, let's go with this whole, I got three kids, like, you know. <laughs> so, and, oh, the change, Steph, to see the change in her yeah. from previous births and that process to that third one where she just put it down and went, you know what, I, I'm not going to adhere to anyone's expectations and I'm just going to, nurture myself and my baby and I'm going to set down these ground rules and I'm just going to fill up my cup ready to go. It was, it was just amazing to see it. really it. is going yeah. back full circle though, which is hilarious. We do this in everything. We do this in food, yeah. like we go <laughs> yeah. full circle to where, you know, women were in tribes and they had the family around and they had that support. We weren't trying to be, you know, mum, wife, business owner, you know, whatever else. Like it, it's, it's, we're really understanding where we've gone wrong in like the 21st century. I love yeah. it great that we're finally seeing that and and certainly for your friend and and those that have had a similar journey just changing things and learning from what's happened to really work on having a you know an even greater experience with greater health and that has to translate to bait like translate to baby's journey in that first year of life and beyond like it's so powerful what we do yeah. has such a huge flow on effect yeah and you can see in her third baby that his nervous system is a whole, whole different set point than the other two. See, whole that's different I'm interested point. in. Grace has oh, a lot I love of reflex that. like me, right? I have a really, yeah. um, really over the top start or reflex from many years ago that I still haven't corrected quite right. And Grace uh -huh. has it. Like if I drop something near her, she will jump like, and it kind of breaks my heart. You can see, oh my goodness, she's inherited that from me. Like she still needs that really sort of, yeah, more nervous system support. And mm -hmm. I'm interested to see what I can do differently for baby number two and how that yeah. might change because that's just something for me that's been really highlighted along my journey. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, there, there is so much that you can do for that nervous system support. There's a – now it's going to escape me as well, but there's a, a beautiful book that talks a lot about someone's nervous system set mm -hmm. point and, um, you know, and that's fine, whatever your set point is, because that's how it happened. But knowing what that is to then be able to adjust for it. So my kids have obviously got a nervous system set point where it's in sort of overdrive, high alert. And so my kids are not the ones that can go to a barbecue and stay up till 10 o'clock at night watching a movie with the other kids while the parents have, you know, a glass of wine and hang out. Uh, my, I have to take them home and have them in bed by six or seven. Mm. And, uh, you know, and, and that's like when you know what your child needs for um, consistency, it's just beautiful. But if I tried to push against that, oh, wow. <laughs> it was, it's funny, you know, parent, you don't understand why people are doing that. You don't understand. Like I remember I had a friend and she, we joke about it that she was like, oh, I'm free between 10, 20 and 11. Like are you available? <laughs> and um, I never really understood her boundaries. And now her mother, I'm like, oh, go girl. Because like leaving the house with a child who hasn't slept or keeping them up yeah. late, like you say, is a disaster nearly 100% yeah. of the time. Like it's not worth yeah. it. No. And then I've seen other kids, you know, that they're rocking along and, and they can just bounce up the next morning and they're out in the surf and it's like, wow, you obviously don't have the comp gene or, you know, like there's all these, all these sort of, um, you know, implications and stuff, which is fine. But it, gosh, it was, it is hard. 
it's hard to stand up in those situations and go, I'm going to take my kids to bed. Mm. Oh, they'll be fine. They'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Just let them go to sleep or they can just stay up. It will be fine. And it's very hard to explain. You don't know what it's like tomorrow morning in my my house. And and just to own that and... um, it's, it's tricky, but you do. You learn that resilience and the language around it and what's best for your family and for your children. Um, and, and, and that's a really nice place to be. But with regards to, we were just talking about that set point and that nervous system response. Um, once again, that's where those beautiful fats come into play. That we, you know, we know that those fats are so grounding. We know those fats are so supportive for that nervous system. And there are so many little um, steps along the way that can make those adjustments to be able to be supportive of that. Yes, absolutely. So let's get you back on for part three because I'd love to talk to you more about testing. So what you do with like your mums or your little ones and certainly I can share what um, I do in the clinic and then um, we'll move into foods like first foods and that sort of fun stuff which I would love to share because I've certainly been doing that over the last, um, well, eight months really because we did start yeah. early but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. It would be wonderful to discuss, um, you know, what what are the signs of when, the you know, either your gut or your infant's gut is down mm-hmm. and what needs to happen, um, when is it appropriate for testing, what's too young, you know, those sorts of things. And because um, we don't need to jump on that train as quickly without setting some other beautiful foundations in place. And then, yeah, just talking about how we can keep moving forward for that exploratory, um, you know, food introduction where children just think it's the best thing ever as yeah. opposed to being scared of the food and mm. nervous about it or rejecting it, those kinds of things. Because talk about stress for a mum, you know, when you put this beautiful beautiful food in front of uh, bubs and it's just like splat all over your face or they don't want to have it or and you feel like you're just constantly cooking and nothing's getting taken in so yeah there's there's lots to be talked about which is so exciting exciting I love it it's so much fun yeah (laughs) it's really cool um but on a just one more little story because we we both have to go I understand but I was going to say this just before um when Noah was 13 months we went to Fiji (coughs) excuse me to a surf camp and it was incredible. The surf camp was, <coughs> of course, I'm going to get a cough now. <coughs> the surf camp was right next door to the village and the people in the village ran the surf camp. And, um, <coughs> excuse me. And so every time I sat down for dinner, it was so fascinating because these beautiful mums would or grandmas would come and take Noah and just walk away. And at the first time it happened, I'm like, oh, I don't even know these people. <laughs> Who was that lady? What's going on here? But I was, I had this kind of, no, nah, but this is a village environment. What, you know, let, let this roll out and see what's going on. And so I had the most beautiful dinner with my husband sitting there overlooking the ocean. Got, you know, it was the first time we probably ever, you know, at that time had a nice dinner. And I walked down to the village and there was Noah in this hammock in between these two trees on the beach and this gorgeous, gorgeous grandma using her foot. She was lying on the ground with another toddler under her arm and using her foot to gently rock Noah. Mm. And Noah was in this hammock just passed out asleep in this oh, land. And I was like, oh, you know, this is a tribe. You know, this is how it rolls. And so when I got back to Australia... Noah would only sleep with movement because he was like that beforehand, but after that situation. And so that was the first time I rang mum and then rang a friend and said, I'm so exhausted. Can you please just take him out for a walk in the pram to put him to sleep so I can actually have a sleep? And it was, it was a real game changer for me to go, you know what? Other people can put my baby to sleep. And I can have a rest. And that Nana loved it. You could see the joy of her putting that baby to sleep. And so it was just that really nice, um, that takes a village situation and ask for help and rest and nurture yourself, which is such a great uh, 
you know, sort of premise that I hope everyone remembers uh, from this podcast as well as many other things. But, um, you know, I don't want people to wait 13 months and go to a surf camp to, to work that out. Like we want this in the first days of birth for women to feel comfortable to ask for support and other women to get in there and go, you know what, I've got this. I will help you. And no one needs to feel uncomfortable about that. Definitely, which is why we share our personal stories. Like the overwhelming response I got to sharing my breastfeeding journey because we need to have this conversation so others feel it's okay. It's not an easy Mm -hmm. ride and someone's highlight reel on social media can sometimes make you feel like only your life is hard. And so having these conversations and um, sharing that with others I think is, yeah, going to change the space, change the landscape. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again. So nice to chat and stay tuned for part three. Thanks for having me, Steph. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.